Father, thank you, Lord, for tonight, for these people that serve and support in this ministry in so many ways. With their time and their talent and their treasure, Father, these things please you when we sacrifice what you give us for your glory as first fruits back to you. And we thank you, Father, that you, uh, I thank you personally that you have sent us men and women who care so much for our ministry that they would be a regular part of it and who have a shared mission, a shared appreciation for your word and for how important it is that it would reach the nations. And I thank you, Lord, for our role in helping that happen. And I thank you, Father, that we are serving collectively um, as men and women who desire to represent Christ well, who know that you cannot teach the word of God and not live it at the same time. For a message that comes from a hypocrite is not a message that will be heard. And so, Father, we thank you that you have given us all a heart to want for the right things, even if we aren't always able in our own power to meet them. But we can be made able in your power, so we ask, Lord, that you would always give us a heart to live according to your word, even as we teach it and share it with others, so that we would never detract from it and we would never be a cause for another person to stumble. For, Father, we would hate to think that we'd work this hard to support the distribution of your word only to be a stumbling block to that very outcome. And so, Father, give us grace, give us direction, give us understanding tonight. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we finish chapter 4, and then we're going to head a little bit into chapter 5. And in these chapters, and actually after even, into chapter 6, we're going to find some of the most practical and timeless advice you can find in the New Testament on church life. Paul is directing his advice to Timothy, because Timothy is the leader who has to carry out all of these instructions. And so as we look at what he says tonight, we're going to see him beginning with very specific instructions to Timothy as a pastor for how the pastor himself is to conduct himself, particularly in the face of opposition. And then Paul will quickly move from that into addressing how every member of the body is to conduct themselves and how a pastor is to regulate that. So let's start with where Paul does in chapter 4. And I'm actually going to back up a little bit because in all the things that Paul is teaching to Timothy tonight and onward, all these commands... They're all being given in fulfillment of something he said to Timothy last week in verses 8 and 9 of 1 Timothy 4. So let's briefly revisit that passage. So we're just overlapping a couple of verses into last week. In verse 8, Paul said, For bodily discipline is of very little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. You remember last week, of course, we looked at these briefly at the end of the teaching. We, we noted how Paul's comparing the pursuit of physical strength to the pursuit of spiritual strength. And he noted that the pursuit of physical strength is of some value, a little value, he says. A little value when you look at it from an eternal perspective. Because the body eventually dies. And of course, when it does, any strength that we have achieved within it goes with it. But then Paul says spiritual strength, pursuing godliness, he says, that kind of strength will persist past our life here. Therefore, the pursuit of that kind of strength is of a much greater gain, Paul says. It benefits us now and it benefits us into eternity. So therefore, the pursuit of godliness is our highest goal. It must take priority over any other pursuit in our life. Paul says in verse 9, this is a trustworthy statement. What he means is, this is biblical truth that you cannot deny and you should not ignore. Today, we might say something like, you could bet on this. It's a way of saying that you cannot look at this and not heed it. In the moments of life, when you make an earthly sacrifice of some kind in order to gain godliness in its place, those moments sometimes will feel a little bit like that's not the best choice. You may feel a little bit like you're being cheated out of something good. You're sacrificing something you really do want. And maybe you can do it once, maybe you can do it twice, but at some point you start to feel like someone on a diet. You, know, you feel like at some point I get to cheat, don't I? At some point I get to drop this. Like when you sacrifice personal income because you make a donation to a ministry. Or when you drop a bad habit or you resist certain temptations, doing so to please the Lord. But there's a part of you that really wishes you didn't have to give that up. The Bible says you can trust, it's a trustworthy statement, you can trust that you made the right call. That in eternity, the wisdom of your sacrifice in pursuit of godliness will become evident. That is, the things you gave up, or the persecutions you accepted, or the mocking that you endured, or the efforts you make in service to Christ, all of those things will eventually bring a reward that is worthy of whatever sacrifice you made in the moment. 
You can trust that, Paul says. So now Paul, from that, launches into a conversation about the various ways Timothy and others in the church need to be ready to make sacrifices in various circumstances so as to gain that eternal outcome, so as to gain godliness. And he begins in verse 10. For it is to this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Paul's in a bit of a transition here, so I'm handling it that way as well. And he begins by saying, for this we labor and strive. And the this refers to that trustworthy statement concerning the eternal value of godliness. So we labor and we strive for godliness. And I love these two words from the Greek. They're actually quite descriptive in Greek, more so than they are in our English translation. In our English, the subtleties of these words are lost. To labor in Greek, the Greek word actually means to grow weary to work so long and so hard that you reach a point that you feel like quitting, where you're exhausted from all of the work, from all of the effort. And as a result of being exhausted, you're on the verge of quitting. And to strive, the word in Greek means to fight and to struggle. So the fight here would be against our own flesh or against the fallen world or against the enemy for that matter. So we fight, we fight temptation, we fight opposition to the word of God, we fight So this is the reality, Paul says, for anyone who is seeking godliness. It doesn't come easy. You work until you're sick and tired of working, and until you're sick and tired of the struggle, and after you get discouraged, and after you grow weary, you keep going, he says. That's why we labor and strive. Why? Because what we're working for in eternity is well worth the sacrifices that it takes to get there. Now, I I love the way Hebrews puts this when it speaks about the struggle that we have here in Hebrews 12. He says, who of us has struggled to the point of death like Jesus did, right? Who's ever taken their struggle against sin to the cross? So we still have a ways to go to equal even what our Lord was willing to do for the sake of sin. But it's a constant effort. There's no finish line this side of death. Death is the finish line. That's why Paul says, run the race to the end. And there are going to be a lot of days where you want to quit this fight. And at every turn, the enemy is going to oppose you. So you'll have headwinds at times, too. The attacks come from every direction. And as a result, there'll probably be casualties along the way. You'll have a bad day once in a while. And the church will see casualties in the form of Christians who essentially stop the fight in their own life. And if you're going to survive in this fight, it's only going to be, Paul says, because you fix your hope on the living God, on Christ himself. If you expect to come through this life with your testimony intact, then you had better be resting on Christ and not on your own power in order to get there. Practically speaking, you have to work with him and not against him. That is, talk less, pray more. Plan a little less and seek God's will a little more. There's still a striving against your own nature and against yourself, but in the accomplishment of things of godliness, it's a yielding to the will of God. And then most of all, understand this pattern of labor and striving and yielding to the Spirit. It is God's good will and purpose for us that we would experience this whole struggle. You can't allow the difficulty of serving Christ and growing in your own godliness become an excuse for not pursuing it because we know it's going to be hard. I mean, you're on notice on that. It shouldn't be an excuse later to say, well, if I knew it was going to be this hard, I wouldn't have done it. You're on notice. It's going to be tough. But the difficulty serves a purpose for God. James explains it this way. He says in James 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. And then he adds why. Knowing that that testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance will have its perfect result in you so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But think about what James just said in light of what Paul said in First Timothy. James is saying essentially the same thing. You have to consider these trials, these struggles, these labors, as Paul calls them, to be good things because they produce change in you, like endurance, he says. And endurance will produce patience and humility or repentance. And those changes, James says, will bring about a perfect result. You will become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what he means is in eternity, that your incentive for pressing ahead in this life in seeking to please Christ and to obtain godliness is so that you can obtain that outcome in eternity, that complete, perfect outcome, that reward, that opportunity to serve, to be acknowledged as a good and faithful servant. That's what you're shooting for. And the Bible says that you'll be in a better position then if you have to struggle a little bit now. 
I think I've heard people compare it to the struggle of the chicks in an egg. If you help a chick get out of an egg by cracking the egg, they won't live because it's in the struggle that they gain the ability to, to breathe on their own and get out of the egg properly. And then Paul adds that Christ, he is the Savior of all men, especially believers, which seems a bit odd, doesn't it? The statement's driven some debate because of Paul's choice of words. The phrase, especially of believers, it could be rendered from the Greek, exceedingly for those believing, or exceedingly for the faithful. Understanding the statement depends on staying in the context of this chapter. That is to say, if I pluck this phrase out of 1 Timothy 4, I'm going to be confused. But if I leave it in context, understanding what Paul's been talking about, I can find a sensible understanding. What is Paul's context? Well, first of all, his context is not a discussion of salvation. There's nothing in this chapter in which Paul has chosen to explain something about how we are saved. So therefore, we cannot stray into that topic either as we try to interpret his words. He's not talking about salvation. What is he talking about? Well, by the context, you have to conclude Paul is saying Jesus is the Savior for all believers. He is the Savior for all believers. That is what he means by all men. But he is especially the Savior for those who, as we know in the context, are living in a believing, or we could say in a faithful way. So obviously the Lord remains Savior for all believers, regardless of whether or not you pursue godliness, right? Even the worst amongst us, even the most disobedient believer, still has the assurance, by their faith alone, that Jesus is their Savior. Christ justifies us from the moment of our faith, and the Bible says nothing can separate us from the love of God. And in that sense, he is the Savior of all, all in the church, in other words. Simply put, salvation does not turn on your choice whether to pursue or whether not to pursue godliness. But for those believers who do pursue godliness, that is, they fix their hope on Jesus for these things, for that person, Jesus is exceedingly their Savior. For them, Jesus is even more a savior because they are not only saved in him, but they are also living for him. Just as you could say, for example, that our country's president is the president of every citizen. And yet he is especially or exceedingly the president of those who voted for him. Likewise, Christ is the savior for all Christians, but he is exceedingly a savior for those who live in obedience to him. We're not saying the salvation of the person is somehow heightened. We're saying Christ is exceedingly a Savior because He will be that much more real to them in their everyday life. They will know Him better as they see Him at work in their lives. And in eternity, Jesus will be even greater a Savior for them than He would for the others because they'll receive a greater profit for having pursued godliness to a greater degree. In all these ways, He is exceedingly the Savior of those who are believing or who are faithful. By the context, we're constrained to that conclusion because any other conclusion takes you out of Paul's conversation and into an entirely different context that he's not talking about. So with that introduction, Paul asks Timothy to prescribe and teach these things. The things he's asking Timothy to prescribe and teach are the things that Paul has discussed both before this statement and after. In fact, he's going to repeat this statement here shortly. So Paul is not emphasizing something particular right now. He's just emphasizing in general, make sure everything I'm telling you here you repeat. He's exhorting Timothy, and I would add all teachers for that matter, not to shy away from sharing the difficult truths of our faith. Prescribing means to set a requirement before the congregation. This is how we do things in the church, prescribing it. Teaching means to explain the reasoning behind the requirement so that the church would have good reason to obey what they've just been prescribed to do. And what Paul's reminding us is that we don't have latitude in the church as leaders or as pastors to cherry pick what the congregation hears what they get to learn. We are under orders to teach the whole counsel of God's word, whether we want to address the topic or not, or whether they want to hear it or not, including, in this case, a teaching about the need to pursue godliness, as Paul just explained, and that there's opportunity for reward should we do so, and, of course, all the other details that are in this letter. Paul seems to have known, I guess, that bad times were coming in the church. He's said that at the outset of this chapter already. Times when pastors would stop teaching their congregations these things. And I think it's safe to say today, most believers, even mature ones, have very little appreciation for even just the thing we've talked about tonight, the idea that there is a test coming and that rewards are on the line. So if someone in the body of Christ does not appreciate the need to labor and to strive for godliness, if they don't understand that they're supposed to or they don't understand the consequences, then what are the odds they're actually going to pursue it? 
that that's going to become a meaningful goal that actually has the potential to change their life in any way. I don't see how that's possible. That's Paul's point. You have to prescribe, and then you have to teach to explain why they're important. And his first prescription regarding all leaders in the church, how God raises these leaders up, he goes to verse 12, he says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you. Because most of us aren't preachers, we're not pastors, I'm going to run through this list in a slightly different way. I'm going to highlight the key thoughts, the key principles that are here. And to do that, we'll have to jump around a little bit within the passage I just read. Uh, And the first of these is that a pastor or a teacher's authority isn't found in that person's physical qualities or their earthly achievements, to include degrees and ordinations and the like. Paul says in verse 12 that Timothy could not let his weaknesses in that respect cause him to shrink back from his mission. Others are going to accuse him perhaps of being too young or unqualified, but Timothy knew otherwise, and he needed to be willing to rest in that. In verse 14, Paul reminds Timothy that he was installed according to the Spirit who manifested God's approval of Timothy through the laying on of hands by the presbytery. The presbytery, remember, just refers to the council of elders. God bestowed Timothy with a spiritual gift, and Timothy... As a result, was ordained by the laying on of hands, as we discussed earlier in this book. And prophetic statements were made, and those prophetic statements indicated this was God's will that Timothy would be raised up. All of these things happened to validate Timothy's ministry. So if God is for you, who can be against you? Now, the carnal church will only respect a certain kind of leader. That is, the right pedigree, from the right places, with the right background, or enough YouTube videos good enough website, drives a nice enough car, trivial things to ridiculous things. That's how the world works. And the word carnal means fleshly. And I'm speaking now in terms of uninformed, untaught, spiritually immature, whoever that may be. Speaking as a guy who has none of that, thankfully. I have a decent website. Um, But there's no website with my big shining face on it called stephenarmstrong.com. Right? And there never will be. Paul's saying that he was installed according to the Spirit and therefore... It doesn't really matter how others view you. The carnality of the church will always view you the wrong way, but if God selected you according to his desire, and often he selects the one you don't see coming, vis-a-vis David versus Saul, right? Then it's not a surprise that we have to swim upstream against the current of thought. It's not going to be unusual for us to be on the outside looking in. God often works that way, not exclusively, but often. Even Paul himself faced exactly this same kind of resistance and scrutiny when he came into ministry. In 2 Corinthians 10, he's writing to that church, and he's dealing with people who were in that church, causing that church to look down on Paul. And they were criticizing Paul. And some of the things that they say come back to Paul, and he writes about it. And in 2 Corinthians 10.10, he says, quoting what, what his critics are saying, he says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. That's what they were saying about Paul. And then Paul's response. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also in deed when present. They said, oh yeah, he's weighty and strong in letters. And Paul says, well, what you saw in my letters, that's who I am in person, spiritually speaking. And then he goes on to say, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but we will boast within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. His point being, I'm not going to measure myself against myself. I'm not going to call myself great, but I'm going to measure myself according to what God has apportioned to me to accomplish and to do. And in that, I'm going to show myself quite weighty when I show up. The apostolic gift that Paul had backed him up. So Paul's point to Timothy, much the same. 
Don't let them look down on your youth. You know what you have from God, and it will be self-evident as you exercise it properly. And that's true for anyone who serves in ministry. Secondly, Paul says that because Timothy will always be under this kind of an attack and scrutiny, he must therefore be diligent to serve properly in God's power. And he says Timothy must continue first in the ministry of God's word. Specifically, he says you have to read the word publicly, exhort the church to obey it, and teach them why these things are true, why these things matter. Those are three steps that constitute the ministry of the word of God. And these are the first things Paul says that Timothy must be conscious to take care of if he is to use what he's been given properly. So a church that fosters personal Bible study but never reads and preaches the word from the pulpit is not obeying this commandment. Or a church that has reading of Scripture during the service but never explains it, much less commands us to obey it, that's wrong also. You have to have all three, according to Paul. And the reason is simple. Reading the word publicly reminds the body of Christ that the authority for our gathering is found in the word of God. By reading it aloud before the congregation, you ensure that all hear it just as it was written, without editing, without commentary. And then you can judge the pastor's teaching and their use of the text against what the text itself said. And you can come to see if the pastor's instructions are the natural outworking of what's in the word or whether they're taking liberty with it or if they're even using it. Secondly, the pastor is to exhort with the word of God. And exhorting is a call to obedience. So we all get many instructions in our daily life from many directions. Don't run, no right, turn on red, please recycle. There's lots of things coming at you all day that are instructive. With each of them comes a choice to obey or not to obey. Take out the trash, do your homework. How often are those things actually obeyed? We all know obedience isn't guaranteed. But if you have someone who you know cares for you, and is calling for your obedience, then the chances that you will actually heed what you've been told go up dramatically. Not perfectly, but they go up. And in this case, Paul's saying to Timothy, you've got to exhort the word of God too. Proper exhortation would mean emphasizing the intended response of God's word. That is, the teacher has to explain the meaning of the text first before then they move to applying it with an eye toward the author's intentions. Not distorting it. So when we do this, we're speaking with true authority because we're echoing the intentions of God himself as reflected in his word. And that kind of exhortation will work to elicit the correct and necessary response from the congregation. But if someone is working with dishonest motives, then they may give exhortations that are not the natural and expected outcome from the text. And they're twisting, in other words, the author's meaning into something they prefer. But then notice also reading and exhorting is still not enough. The body of Christ is also called to understand the word of God through teaching. That is to say, we are called to obey what Christ says, but we're not called to obey in ignorance. We're supposed to understand why we're obeying it. In his grace, the Lord equips teachers and pastors in the church to ensure that we get that understanding. And that's why Paul asked Timothy to teach God's word. Teaching, in a sense, is making scripture understandable in such a way that it encourages our obedience. And that's really the key test. The Lord, speaking through Isaiah to Israel, said this in Isaiah 1, 17. He said, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. That's the Lord's heart for his people. It's just the same as when you encourage your children's obedience by giving them an understanding, if they're old enough anyway, an understanding of why your rules are sensible and why their obedience is to their benefit. If you're thinking that way with your kids, it's no surprise then that the Lord would explain himself to us in his word likewise to encourage our obedience. The more you understand his word, the easier obedience becomes, at least in the sense that it overcomes your natural objections to why it might not be the best thing. It'll always be a struggle because your flesh opposes it, but in your heart you'll understand it. So when a pastor commands his flock to obey, and yet withholds a biblical explanation for why, then that person is either misrepresenting the scripture for their own purposes or is speaking without authority. At the very least, they're making obedience a lot harder than it needs to be for their people. And a lot of false teachers, as I've said, make a living out of issuing exhortations without proper biblical exposition to support it because they know that they don't have that support. They're off track. Likewise, Paul tells Timothy, don't neglect your spiritual gift. 
That's the second thing he asked Timothy to do in order to prescribe and teach these things. And we don't know for sure what his gift is, but based on what Paul says here and in his other letter, it's likely that it was either evangelism or pastor-teacher, as we'd expect to be the case. What does it mean to neglect your spiritual gift? It means to set it aside, to refrain from operating in it. For example, if someone has the gift of evangelism but doesn't spend time engaged in witnessing, they are neglecting their gift. But there's another way to do it, too. It's possible to pursue the use of your gift and yet still neglect it. For example, if someone has the gift to teach, but they fail to spend the necessary time in study, while they're neglecting their gift, they may still get up and teach, but they get up unprepared. And because the gift of teaching is a gift to understand and relate what Scripture holds, then like all gifts, it depends on exercising in diligence that ability. So if I don't do the study part, then the part of my gift that deals with understanding the Scripture isn't being put to work. I'm just getting up and talking. So Paul's warning, Timothy, don't get off track. Don't get distracted from what it is God has gifted you to do as a pastor teacher. So don't get busy doing things like defending your own honor against your critics or building the church, accomplishing some other mundane, earthly task that forgets the main things. Our pastors should not be administrators. Our pastors shouldn't be HR people in the church. Our pastors shouldn't be doing budgets. Our pastors shouldn't be doing most of the things that they do which qualifies them to be more of a mini-CEO than to actually do what their gift has called them to do. I doubt there's a gift of budget. There's a gift of giving. But the point I'm saying is, if someone's truly in the role of pastor-teacher because that's where God has gifted them, then it is to their detriment if they're spending time doing other stuff. That's Paul's point. Don't neglect it. This is an ever-present threat to pastors. Many pastors are neglecting their spiritual gifts by this definition. Instead, Paul tells Timothy, and I would argue all pastors, to take pains with these things. To take pains, that's translated in a loose way because it's a difficult Greek construction originally. You could translate this, study these things, give yourself over to them. That might be another way to put it. And the things here he's referring to are the proper duties of a pastor. Teaching, exhorting, operating in a gift. So Timothy didn't need a hobby. Timothy doesn't need another job. Timothy doesn't need a distraction. He needs to be completely absorbed in becoming the man of God that God has called him to be, leading the flock by teaching God's word. And here again, that's a sober reminder to pastors today that they should not lose focus on the very one thing that they are called to do within their flock. Finally, Paul tells Timothy that he must conduct himself as an example to those who believe, that is, in the church. This command is the linchpin of the three things he has now told Timothy he must do in prescribing and teaching. Timothy is already swimming upstream as a pastor because of his youth. He's young, he's inexperienced. For that matter, he's half Gentile, half Jew, and he's untrained. He really has nothing going for him. And yet, he's going to have the burden of exhorting, through the Word of God, those who are under his charge, telling them to obey the Word of God as he explains it to them. Whether they are older than him, whether they are more learned than he is, no matter what their station in life, he has the job of telling them what to do at least in a godly sense. So with that situation, Paul says to Timothy, you have to show yourself to be an example in all these things to those who believe and those you plan to pastor because if you give them any ammunition, they're going to take shots at you. How can he be expecting his audience to listen to his counsel if he doesn't comport himself in the right way? He doesn't have any natural authority to fall back on. He only has the word of God and his own integrity as a man of God. So if he becomes known as a hypocrite, he's going to lose all credibility. He's done. His mission is over there because of where his starting position is. It's all God or nothing with Timothy, which is Paul's point. So he tells Timothy in verse 12, for example, watch your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, and purity. Briefly, speech refers to poorly chosen words, whether unkind, hurtful, coarse, indiscreet. I know personally everything a pastor says is being measured and observed and should be. Even a single idle word can undermine your ability to lead the flock or their impression of you. Conduct, that doesn't actually refer to your behavior as in sinful behaviors. It's a different word in the Greek. It refers to lifestyle. It's lifestyle. A pastor's lifestyle should comport with his teaching. And his lifestyle should exhibit self-control and modesty and a life without excess. Now, that doesn't mean a pastor has to adopt an intentionally austere lifestyle in order to look the part. But neither should he flaunt his wealth, that is, if he's especially blessed in that regard. He shouldn't flaunt it, he shouldn't make a big deal out of it. Just live a quiet life. 
Love refers to having a caring, selfless attitude toward all people, especially those under your care. Remember, love is not a, an emotion, biblically speaking. It's an action. It's a verb. So it's about showing love to others, even the people you don't particularly like. That's not an oxymoron. Uh, biblically speaking, you can love people you don't like. Actually, it's an essential quality for a pastor. The next one, faith, is demonstrating a life of courage and peace and contentment that's consistent with a faith in Christ and a hope for the eternal and not a lot of worry and investment in the current day situation. And if you have a pastor who's easily rocked by life, who's unstable in his ways, that is not going to be the best person to encourage the flock to face life's trials with faith. You need a pastor who's a good example of faith lived out. And then finally, purity. Purity, I think, is, is self-evident. It's speaking about moral purity, about someone who guards themselves against the various ways the enemy can entrap or flesh can entrap us. Furthermore, Paul tells Timothy in verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. To watch yourself here is not a repetition of the earlier statements about speech and love and purity and the like. It means to guard your personal life from giving cause for accusations, if even only the appearance of sin. Watch yourself. Be careful. Like if you send your kid on a foreign trip by themselves, you say, watch out now. Be careful. Watch yourself. It's not so much you're watching your own conduct, although that's a part of it. It's about watching out for traps, watching out for the enemy's schemes, watching out for things that don't look right, sound right. That lady who's just way too interested in you. Or that guy who's got that great business deal that sounds too good to be true. Watch yourself in those terms because the enemy has a million ways to trip somebody up even as they're thinking about their own godliness and other areas of their life. Obviously, a pastor may take steps to protect himself against these things, and he should, but no one can guard himself by himself. That's like putting the fox in charge of the hen house. So it's incumbent upon someone who is intent on guarding themselves to seek outside counsel and accountability to ensure that they are truly guarded. And then secondly, we must guard the teaching, our teaching as teachers. This is an equally important task, and I would tell you it's an even more difficult task in some ways. Guarding one's teaching means being careful to maintain a correct view of Scripture while rejecting bad influences and otherwise straying into false teaching. But it can also mean remaining humble, remaining teachable in heart. If someone as a teacher becomes too proud and self-assured in what they think they know, then they themselves become unteachable. And if you are unteachable as a teacher, you are useless. Because teaching is all about learning the next thing you have to teach. And as a result, someone who is unteachable, someone who is proud or self-assured, they will slowly or quickly drift away from orthodoxy and become increasingly foolish in their speculations and teaching. And then I thought of one final way that you need to guard yourself in your teaching, and that is that a pastor maintain a proper discipline in his preparation and in his delivery. Putting in the necessary time to prepare a proper teaching, developing the craft around how you communicate it so that it's an effective tool when you go to speak. If a teacher fails to guard the teaching in this way, then you begin to mail it in, as the saying goes. You spend a little less time prepping than you should. You start depending on things you already know or that you've learned in the past. And when you do that repeatedly, your teaching starts to become little more than a collection of greatest hits. Because everything you're saying, you've said before, and now you're just stringing them together, and it replaces godly insight. That in itself is not guarding the teaching that you've been given, the, the task. So you take all that I've said so far together, and Paul is asking Timothy to be courageous and diligent, spirit-led, smart, recognizing he has a difficult job, yet one God has equipped you for. It's one God has called you for. He wants you to accomplish it. So all that remains for Timothy to do is to work in his gift, to nurture that gift. Don't shrink back, recognizing eternity is on the line. And Paul says that doing this will ensure salvation, both for himself and for those who hear him. Now, here again, the context drives our understanding, but even without the context, there's something about what he said that eliminates a possible interpretation because obviously Timothy is already saved. We know that without even any question. He's already saved by his faith. So when Paul says that he will ensure salvation for himself, he cannot be talking soteriologically. He can't be talking about how you get to heaven because if he was suggesting that Timothy had some work that must be done in order to ensure this salvation that gets us to heaven, then we would be teaching a works-based salvation. 
And that's certainly not what Paul is doing. Faith alone is our means of salvation. Therefore, we know Paul isn't talking about eternal salvation at all here. If he were, he would be suggesting, as I said, a works-based theology. Instead, then, we must look at the word salvation, again, from a new context, from another context. And based on the context of chapter 4, salvation here means salvation from the stumbling that Paul has just been talking about. Salvation from the troubles that would come if Timothy didn't guard his teaching, or if he didn't guard himself, or if he didn't guard his conduct in all those other ways. If you don't do those things, then you won't be saved from the consequences. If you do those things, though, you will ensure salvation for yourself in that regard. And furthermore, you'll ensure the same salvation from stumbling for your flock. And this is a truth we've all seen play out in the negative many times. When a pastor fails in his duties, when he falls in the line of duty... It's more than just his own testimony that goes down the tubes. If he can't guard himself or his own teaching, his sin may embroil the whole congregation into controversy or into division. It may even threaten their very existence. That's the consequence of a man who does not do the job he's been given properly in this important role. So if Timothy doesn't guard these things, protect these things, recognize what Paul has told him, then he has a great risk for himself and for the church. And if our own disobedience brings us consequences in eternity, well, imagine how much is on the line for a pastor who fails and brings bad consequences for his whole flock. That's why Paul tells Timothy to take his responsibility so seriously. That's why Hebrews says, be kind to the people who lead you. You Don't make it hard for them because they will have to give an account. So that's Paul's opening salvo on this conversation about prescribe and teach these things. Help your flock. Be a good leader. And where he moves now is through a series of direct orders to the congregation vis-a-vis Timothy. That is, Timothy will carry them out. And these direct orders, Paul expects Timothy to, once again, prescribe and teach, prescribe and teach. The first group of these instructions regulate the different socioeconomic groups within the church and the relationships between these socioeconomic groups. Because you have to remember, Ephesus was a relatively wealthy city, and so the church, drawing from that community, had a mix of economic backgrounds within it, from the poor to the rich. Now, normally, outside of a church setting, these groups would almost never mix in society. The rich don't hang around with the poor people and vice versa, not unless the poor people are cleaning their house or something. So that's just normal society. I don't think it's any different really today. But when they came together inside the church with a common faith, the same faith that brought them all in, then you have this potential for awkwardness, for disruptive patterns that needed to be addressed, for behaviors learned outside the church that were no longer appropriate inside the church. And yet, the church had to find a way to balance love and charity with personal responsibility and duty. We, we couldn't let one eliminate the need for the other. So that's the balancing act that Paul's trying to get Timothy to take on here. Keep in mind, this guy's in an absolutely no-win situation. He's young and unappreciated, and he has this tremendously difficult task, which is centered mostly on carefully negotiating the issues within a church. It's a wonderful test of his interpersonal skills, to say the least. So Paul begins where you have to begin when you're dealing with this potential problem, that is, of a young guy stepping into a church trying to correct everyone on thorny issues. He begins explaining how you deal with the respected members of the church. Verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters, in all purity. Paul explains first to Timothy, here's how you're going to approach those who deserve respect. This is the natural starting point, as I said, because as Timothy implements Paul's instructions, he must do it diplomatically, he has to do it with some sense of respect. So the first order of business is, how do I work with someone who is my senior? In ancient culture, age was inherently worthy of respect. It certainly was then more so than it is today. And therefore, it was out of keeping, entirely out of keeping, for a younger man like Timothy to rebuke or to counsel an older man under any circumstances, particularly in a religious setting. And yet, just as Paul said, Timothy could not let his physical age, his younger stature, cause him to fail to do the job that God was calling him to do. So this isn't really about whether to do it, it's just about how. Obviously, God knew what he was doing when he called Timothy. He knew he'd be in this situation, so self-evidently, God has a plan for how he's going to work it through. And it starts with respect. Now, my Bible says in English that Timothy should not sharply rebuke an older man. But in Greek, it simply says, do not rebuke an older man. A rebuke is a public censure of somebody. 
And it always brought a degree of shame. I mean, if you were rebuked in public, it was a face-losing situation. And there is a time and a place for rebuking people in the body of Christ, if necessary. But Paul says to Timothy, you may never rebuke an older man. Obviously, if an older man is wrong, or if he needs correction in the church, Timothy can't ignore that. He has to do something. So Paul tells Timothy, the way you're going to deal with that man is you're going to act with wisdom, seeking to win him over, making an appeal to him like you would to your own father. Now, in a patriarchal culture, as in Paul's day, you never spoke to your father except with respect. In fact, in the more ancient times back in Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob's day, the father was an absolute authority to the point that if a son was disobedient, the father had legal rights to kill him, to execute him as an act of law. That's why fathers were given such great respect. And that still carried into Paul's day to a lesser extent, but it was still there in a cultural sense. And so when Paul says to Timothy, treat this man like he's your father, he's setting some very firm boundaries for Timothy on what Timothy should or shouldn't do, could or couldn't say. He is to speak with respect. And if you think about how you would be with a father you respect, you're going to show great deference, patience, carefully speaking, choosing your words and the timing. You may not get everything out the first time. You may wait and choose your opportunities for a later time. You're going to be seeking to preserve the relationship even as you're working through some conversation. Not necessarily getting it all exactly the way you want the first time, certainly, if ever. That's what Paul is asking of Timothy. Just like you can't censure your own father, Timothy could not act unilaterally to rebuke an older man. He either had to find the right way to get the job done, or at the very least he had to seek the help of other older men, I would presume, to work from a peer-based relationship with that one man and help out in the situation. The goal here is to seek a familial style of relationship within the church. And that's why he said, if you have to counsel a younger man, well, don't lord over him. Don't talk down to him. Rather, speak to him as an older brother might speak to a younger brother in love. And an older woman should have the respect that we show our mother. And a younger woman, like we would do a sister, only he adds in all purity. Just as we today have boundaries, it was even more the case in Paul's day. A man would never have gone to see a woman who was not his wife without the husband or brother being present. I mean, things of that sort. Which is to say... You need to take the necessary cautions. So if Timothy remembered these guidelines, what would have been the outcome? Well, he would have spoken in love. He would have shown charity. He would have shown patience. He would have shown kindness. Those are the natural things we'd expect within those family relationships. And as a result, the chances of him gaining a positive outcome in those experiences would have gone up, not down. That's the irony here. For having taken this approach, he's not less effective. He's more effective in what he's trying to do. And more importantly than that, he preserves a relationship. Now, think about what would have happened if he didn't take the advice. Imagine a young, untrained pastor trying to bully older men or speak dismissively to others beneath him in trying to get things done. I've seen guys like that, and those pastors typically have a very short career in any church. So Paul remarks on how to deal with older men and how to deal with women in the church because he now goes into a set of instructions in which that tact is going to be really important. Paul tells Timothy to regulate the behavior of two groups, and we're going to find later, or we can assume through what he says later, that these two groups are causing trouble in the Ephesus church. And the groups are widows and elders. Chapter 5, verse 3 through 7, he says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For that is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. Now, widows today aren't such a hot topic like they were in the early church, but there are some general principles behind what he's saying about these particular people that do apply in other situations more than just from the sake of a widow's perspective. A widow in ancient times was among the most vulnerable members of society. They, they were women, which alone made them vulnerable to a degree, because women in that day had severely limited abilities to provide for themselves financially. They generally couldn't own land. They couldn't conduct business transactions on their own for the most part. So if you were a woman without a husband and you were older and unable by your strength to do much labor, then you were almost entirely dependent on others for care. And if a family couldn't or wouldn't step up to support you, then you became dependent on charity. And that usually meant a miserable life and an early death. There's no welfare in this time. Within the church, however, widows would find an extended family who were willing to shoulder the burden as a demonstration of Christ's love for his children, 
But with that kind of charity comes an opportunity for abuse. Some widows and some widows' families took advantage of the church's generosity, freed up from the money concerns. The widows might become party girls, so to speak, bringing shame upon the church. And then some families who had the means to support their own widows withdrew their support in the expectation that the church would just pick up the tab. Obviously, that behavior is sinful, and it risks tearing the church apart because those who are stuck with the bill resent that they have others living the high life on their nickel. So Paul tells Timothy to nip this in the bud. And first he says that the family maintains the first position of responsibility for the financial needs of others in the family. That is, a widow's children or grandchildren, Paul says, should learn piety. Piety just means to show God worship and respect. But in this context, what he's saying is the family should show respect to the widow as an act of obedience to God. Furthermore, charity inside the family, Paul says, is payback to the parents. I love this. I think we joke about this sometimes. We don't actually think of it literally, but Paul speaks of it quite literally in verse 4. That is to say, a child or a grandchild has been given food and shelter and care for many years before they left the home. So when their parent or grandparent is in financial need, the child should feel an obligation to assist that person. And that's a general rule. I mean, obviously you can imagine exceptions, like a parent who's gambling all their money away or or otherwise irresponsible. We're not obligated to just put good money after bad. But if you have someone who's truly in need, like I tell my kids, you've got 18 years of payback minimum. <laughs> Which includes, toward the end of that process, changing my diaper. Comes around goes around. But Paul's point, Paul's point is that honoring your parents in Exodus 20, right? Thou shalt honor thy parents. Honoring your parents means financially as well, which is, he says, acceptable in the sight of God. So even though the church can be a safety net for the body of Christ in times of need, it does not replace the family's responsibility to care for its own as far as it is able. And in general, then, we need to be careful as the church about extending charity merely because we see need. There will always be more need than the church can address. Jesus himself said, you'll always have the poor. That's not a way of dismissing them or showing a lack of compassion. It's simply to say you can't fix that problem. So don't make it your goal. Not in and of itself. So anytime you extend charity, remember, you're taking money out of the pocket of a church family member, someone in the church, whether directly or indirectly, So you better be sure that it is a worthy need, that it is worth that sacrifice. Moreover, the church's charity is supposed to be directed to the needs of the body primarily and only after the family has left you with no other option. They are run out of money or options. But the charity the church does give its members comes with strings attached. Paul says a widow may receive support if she passes four tests. First, she has to be a widow. (laughs) But he says a widow indeed. That is, she must be alone, truly without support. The church should be her last option. The reason the church is to be the last option is not because we're greedy or unwilling to give. It's simply because charity places a burden on other members in the church. So out of respect and out of love for all concerned, we don't extend charity within the body without justified need. It's just that simple. Secondly, Paul says the woman must have fixed her hope on God. Now, that phrase could be understood in several ways, but I personally, I believe it's best understood to be a test of identity. That is to say, Paul is referring to a believing widow as opposed to an unbelieving widow. So the second test is she must truly be Christian. Just because a Christian man or woman has a mother who's elderly and needs support does not make them eligible just because they are the family member of a Christian. They must be a Christian if the church is to support them. Church charity, in other words, is to be focused on the believer. The church is not an ATM, nor is it a humanitarian relief organization. It exists to serve the spiritual needs of the world, and it provides limited physical support to its own. But you never want to get those two mixed up. We provide spiritual need to the world. We provide physical need on top of spiritual need to the church. Thirdly, she must serve the body, he says, in keeping her confession of faith, which Paul describes as giving prayers night and day. Here's what he means. The basic concern here is that the widow who's receiving support from the church must be actively engaged in the life of the body through service to that body. She doesn't simply show up and cash her checks on a weekly basis and then disappear until the next Sunday. Rather, we would expect her, out of the thankfulness of her heart, 
to support the church in the way that she can by giving back spiritually to the limits of her ability. And for most widows, the only reasonable thing you could expect them to do on the behalf of the body of Christ is to pray for them. An older woman living on church support has little to offer by definition. So she has no money, probably little strength or skills, but she has time. And prayer requires nothing but a heart for God and for his people. So it's really the reverse principle of what Paul gives for our requirement to support teachers. Paul says teachers give us spiritual things, so we should be willing to give them earthly things as an offering of thanks. Reverse that. The church is giving the needy widow earthly things, food, money, and the like, so she should be willing to repay the congregation in spiritual things, in prayer. So if the church gives charity to widows or anyone, then we should demand that they meet these tests first. Are they a believer? And do they seek to take the church's support only after exhausting all other avenues of support? And are they coming to provide to the church something in response to the material wealth, the material gift they're receiving? Are they an active part of the body as best as they can be in thankfulness? If they meet these tests, then we can offer them support. And then finally, Paul adds a fourth condition. He says in verse 6 that if a widow happens to abuse her income, then she isn't to be viewed with the honor of a widow any longer. Wanton pleasure, he uses the term wanton pleasure. It means literally to live in luxury. That's what the term means. So this one would continue to apply even after the support begins. If someone who is a widow taking support from the church or seeking the status of such is living in an excessive way, especially if if she's seeking church support, well, then she's not to be viewed in the same way as you would an ordinary widow. That's why Paul says here at the end of verse 6, it's actually hard to translate. Uh, The most literal translation would be, and she who is given to living in luxury has died. It's a play on words, I think. I think Paul means that she is to be left for dead, though obviously she isn't in danger of dying physically. He means she's living a spiritually dead lifestyle and therefore the church has no obligation to care for her, to think about her in those terms. So let's just end today with Paul's words in verse 7. He says, again, prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. Here again, don't shy away from saying these things, Timothy. If you share this truth and the whole body of Christ may be motivated to remain above reproach, the needy would be helped, the self-sufficient would not become a burden, and the reckless are left to their own. And in all those things, you find the name of Christ being glorified among the nations. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for these uh, sound words from the Word of God, Father, from Paul to Timothy. Help us to enact them in the proper way with charity and grace for all. But also, Father, let us hold the line in teaching things that must be taught, prescribing things that must be prescribed, helping to hold back the apostasy that we see around us in the church. Help us, Father, be that light that you can use to that end and to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.